Hi, and welcome to the Magical History Tour podcast. I'm Hollis, your tour guide, and today we're going to see the problems that arise around the Articles of Confederation and the eventual decision to make a new constitution altogether. So let's get on the road. When Britain surrendered, they basically abandoned their Indian alliances. And when the Native Americans found out about the armistice, they were really surprised. America assumed that since they had achieved victory over Great Britain, they had also achieved victory over the Native tribes. But the Native tribes did not really agree with this assumption. Now, the heavily armed Americans are pressing for more land after the revolution, and even the Oneidas, who had fought with the Patriots, were forced to make territorial concessions along with other native tribes. Even during the revolution, people were moving west. And after the revolution, it was non-stop. It's like someone left the floodgates open. Thousands of Americans began to pour into western lands, and violence was very common. The British still occupied posts in the northwest, though they had promised in the treaty that they would leave North America, and they encouraged native tribes to attack vulnerable settlements. They even provided some of the guns. Spain also did not accept the territory settlements of the Treaty of Paris, and because there was some disputed land, they will close the port of New Orleans to American traffic, and that effectively blockaded the Mississippi River so that we couldn't trade on it, and that outraged Americans. John Jay attempted to negotiate with the British to leave the Northwest area, but he was told that until the debts from before the war were paid back to the British, it wasn't going to happen. He also tried to negotiate with the Spanish, but to no avail. So these failed attempts will cause a lot of Westerners to consider leaving the Confederation, and some of them even considered going back to the British. Others will work as spies for the Spanish. They just didn't feel that the American government was taking care of them and working and looking out for their best interests. Now, in 1784, Congress is going to take up the problem of extending authority over the West. They were like, we've got to do something about the West. How are we going to deal with the land? What can we do with it? There were, there were different ideas. They could have made all of the territory in the West one big colony, but instead they proposed a remarkably Republican colonial policy. It proposes that the territory would eventually be divided into states, fully equal to the original 13, with guarantees of self-government and Republican institutions. Once the population of a territory grew equal to that of the smallest of the original 13 states, which was Rhode Island, the territory could petition for statehood, as long as it agreed to remain forever a member of the Confederation. Congress will end up accepting all of these proposals but one. They will reject seven to six, very close, but it didn't happen, the clause that would have forever prohibited slavery in the West. The next year, the Land Ordinance of 1785 will provide for the survey and sale of Western lands. Now, we're not going to talk about the Land Ordinance for long, but in an attempt to avoid all that chaos of overlapping surveys and land claims that they had with the original 13 colonies, the authors of the ordinance will create a very ordered system of survey. They divided all the land into six-mile square townships composed of 36 sections of one square mile each. If you fly over the Midwest, you can look down in an airplane and if it's clear, you can see it's kind of like a grid. It's very squared off and they wanted it very specific. So Jefferson, of course, thinks that the land ought to be just given away to settlers. He's like, we should just give this land away. No big deal. But Congress is like, are you just, what's wrong with you? We have to get some money. Congress is trying to get some revenue for the government. So they end up setting up a system for the auction of public lands and they started it at not less than $1 per acre. Now, that doesn't 
doesn't sound like a lot. And of course people think, oh, that was probably a lot back then. But today that would actually be starting at today, like $20 an acre, which is really, really cheap, obviously. But they just needed some form of income and they started it really low. All proceeds from the sale of the land will go into the national treasury. Now, once again, you're gonna have colonists sort of doing what they wanna do. Thousands of people who didn't feel like waiting for the official opening of the public land north of the Ohio River just went on in and settled there illegally. Some of them were like, we don't have the money to be in an auction, we couldn't afford it, so we're just gonna go take some land. And some of them just didn't wanna wait till it was all surveyed and taken care of. So they're like, we're just gonna go. We wanna be the first ones in there, we wanna pick the land that we want. So in 1785, Congress will actually raise troops and evict a bunch of these people. Now, as soon as the troops left, the squatters, as they were called, returned. That's going to become a persistent problem, and it will cause Congress to revise Jefferson's democratic territorial plan. They came up with something called the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, and that created a system of government for the territory north of the Ohio River. It said that between three and five states would end up being carved out of that land, and they would eventually be admitted on an equal footing with the original states. So eventually, they would be just the same as the rest of the states. However, slavery was prohibited in that area. So you couldn't have people who came in and brought a whole big plantation's worth of people to run it and get free land. No, you couldn't do that. So slavery was prohibited. And the initial guarantee of self-government that was in Jefferson's plan was replaced by the rule of a congressionally appointed court of judges and a congressionally appointed governor. So until they became an actual state, they would be run by people who were appointed for them. Now, once the free white male population had grown to 5,000, those citizens would be able to choose an assembly, but the governor was still given the power of absolute veto on all territorial legislation. Finally, once the territory's population reached, I believe it was 60,000, it could create a state constitution and apply to Congress for statehood, and then it would become on equal footing with everything else. But until that time, they there were limitations because it was sort of like a punishment for those people who who came in and took land illegally. Ohio is going to actually be the first territory to become a state in this way. Now let's take a look at the economics. There were several ways that Congress financed the war. They issued paper currency, for one thing. They took loans from friendly foreign powers like Spain and France. By the end of the war, in fact, they had taken about $9 million in foreign subsidies, but that was still not enough to back the paper continental currency that Congress had authorized. At this point, the face value had risen to $200 million. So they printed $200 million worth of paper money, but they only actually had maybe nine million bucks to back it. So uh, it wasn't really worth a whole lot. So Congress call on the states to raise taxes because you know Congress couldn't raise taxes. So they said, okay, states, raise taxes for us. And they said, you can pay it in continental currency. So people could use their continental currency, pay their taxes. And then when the money came in, the government would take that money and retire some of the bills so that there would not be as much in circulation. But here's where we see the problems with the Articles of Confederation. Well, some of them. Now the States, for the most part, didn't want to do this. In fact, most of the states just printed their own currency. Instead, they were like, well, this is worthless, so we'll just print our own. <laughs> so that's what they did. And they actually printed probably $200 million in state currency by the war's end. So the result is the rapid depreciation of continental currency, and they had runaway inflation. People who received, who were on a fixed income, like soldiers or landlords who couldn't raise their rents or merchants and things like that, people were devastated 
So this is during the war. By May of 1781, people had actually quit using continental currency because it was so worthless. And you know how today we might say something like, you buy something that breaks immediately and you're like, well, that wasn't worth a dime. Well, they did the same thing. They would say things like, that wasn't worth a continental. So it was a problem. Now you still have a lot of economic issues during and after the war. America was not doing well economically at the time. In 1777, a continental dollar traded against a Spanish dollar at the rate of three to one, which meant it took three continental dollars to make one Spanish dollar. By 1779, it was 40 to one. And by 1781, it was 146 continental dollars to get one Spanish dollar. So that leads to a lot of inflation because the money isn't really worth anything. The North will respond to the outcry over inflation by setting laws that regulated wages and prices. You can't charge people too much for things. You can't pay people too little, stuff like that. You had food riots, you had stealing, theft, all kinds of things going on. Now, Robert Morris will become the Secretary of Finance in May of 1781, and he's able to begin to turn things around. He'll first persuade Congress to charter a Bank of North America in Philadelphia. That is the first private commercial bank in the United States. He took loans from Holland and from France, and with them, he deposited large amounts of gold and silver coin, as well as bills of exchange into the bank vaults. And then he issued a brand new paper currency that was backed by that treasury. So basically, say he took $10 million in loans, he printed $10 million in the new money and said, okay, dollar for dollar, this is what it's worth. So he issued that currency out, and once people began to gain confidence in the money and in the bank, Morris was able to do things like supply the Continental Army. He was able to make interest payments on the debt, which in 1783 was estimated at about $30 million, which today would be about $547,500,000. After the war, inflation is going to be replaced by depression. The United States was a supplier of raw materials, and they imported a lot of manufactured products. Britain was, of course, the principal trading partner, and we just had a war with Britain. So there's very little coin in circulation at that time. There's really no national currency that's worth anything. There was a depression from 1784 to 1788, and it hit while the country was burdened with the huge debt incurred by the Revolutionary War. Congress, of course, wasn't allowed to raise taxes on its own, so they go again to the states. This time, the states mostly did tax their residents, and during a time when there was almost no money in circulation, this scared people. So the economic problem is going to become a political problem. The states really tried to help. They tried to raise money by erecting high tariffs in areas where there were manufacturing interests so that they would curb imports and protect infant industries. Shippers, however, avoided paying these taxes by unloading their cargo in neighboring states that didn't have the tariff, then distributing it overland. So say, for example, you lived in Massachusetts and Massachusetts had a tariff, you would just send your goods over to Rhode Island and go pick it up and take it back to your place of business and you didn't have to pay the tax because Rhode Island maybe didn't have that tax. That's a problem. Additionally, some states put high taxes on British goods and shipping, which will lead the British to do the same thing. And so the British would tax the American goods higher they would just take their goods to states with lower taxes on them. Consequently, the states end up competing for trade. Commercial regulation is going to have to be national if it was going to be effective. 
Some areas called for payment of taxes or debts in goods and commodities, sort of like bartering, and a lot of farmers really liked this idea. If that didn't go over, the farmers would press their state governments for something called legal tender laws, and that would require creditors to accept at specified rates of exchange this whatever the state's paper currency was, regardless of its worth. So if your state currency is only worth 50 cents on the dollar, they would still have to accept it as though it were worth a real dollar. Creditors don't like that idea at all, but farmers were strong enough at this time to get legal tender laws enacted in seven states during the Depression. Now, overall, the programs were actually very modest and they worked fairly well and they didn't cause the problems that were feared by the creditors. However, not all the states did that. Now, it's a minor problem in domestic waters that will actually launch the movement to overhaul the American government. In March of 1785, a small group of men from Maryland and Virginia will gather at Mount Vernon, which was George Washington's home on the Potomac, to discuss the conflicting claims of Maryland and Virginia fishermen. Uh, They were complaining over rights to fish in Chesapeake Bay. They were really unable to draw a boundary between the two states' fisheries. Where can you fish on the Chesapeake versus where can I fish on the Chesapeake? They did, however, conclude that the Chesapeake problem was only one in a huge tangle of disputes among the states and between the states and the Confederation government. So they realized that there's all these problems and they're not getting them solved. Early in 1786, the Virginia legislature invited all of the states to appoint delegates to a convention, and this convention was going to be held to consider political remedies to these economic problems that they'd been having. Only five states attended, but it was called the Annapolis Convention because that's where it was held, and at the Annapolis Convention, they did pass a resolution requesting that the Confederation Congress call a national convention to discuss all the defects in the system of the federal government. Uh, Like, there's some problems with the Articles of Confederation, we need to talk about it. Congress will, rather reluctantly, endorse what would be known as the Philadelphia Convention, which would be held in May of 1787, and its purpose was to revise the Articles of Confederation. Now, conservatives wanted not just to revise, but to considerably strengthen the national government. The convention probably wouldn't have even gotten to happen if it hadn't been for an armed rebellion in Massachusetts. A rural uprising in Massachusetts in 1786 that was caused by political uncertainty and economic instability will shake the nation. Farmers in western Massachusetts were hit hard during the Depression. Now, when county merchants will press them to pay their debts, many of them couldn't, and they would be sued for non-payment of debt. So they would be brought to court, they couldn't pay, and so then they would be put into jail. County jails were filled with these debtors who couldn't pay. Now, lots of towns, actually dozens of towns, will petition the state legislature for relief. They'll ask for legal tender laws or bartering or something to help the farmers. But the legislature at that time in Massachusetts was dominated by urban and merchant interests, and so they kind of ignored it, and they rejected the legal tender laws or the paper currency laws that the farmers wanted to pass. This was really frustrating because they felt like they weren't being heard and nothing was being done to help them. So Daniel Shays, who was a veteran officer of the Revolutionary War, decided to take it upon himself and lead a group against the government of Massachusetts.
Massachusetts. So during the spring and summer of 1786, farmers throughout the state will muster their community militias and they close the courts. Basically, they go in, they have their guns, and they stand in front of the courthouse and they say, you're not going to open today. You're not going to arrest us and put us in jail for non-payment of debt today. You've got to fix the problem. Now, this is pretty much what they did during the revolution. They took up arms when they had a problem. This type of rebellion was most widespread in Massachusetts, but similar things had happened in every other New England state except for Rhode Island. In Rhode Island, the farmers already had power. Shay's Rebellion is one of many, but it's going to be one that historians label significant. And it's significant because it shows the unworkability of the Articles of Confederation. These states were such satellites that with no overarching national government, to resolve a dispute between two states was really virtually impossible. And we see that also with all the snarls and tangles that they had with, you know, boundary issues and stuff like that. The most important consequence of Shays' Rebellion was its effect on conservative nationalists who were unhappy with the distribution of power between the states and the national government under the Articles of Confederation. A lot of them felt it was time to curb democracy just a little bit and give the national government a bit more power. Shays and his followers did not regard themselves as a dangerous social force. They had done this during the Revolution. They believed that they were carrying on the spirit and the struggle of the Revolution against a privileged elite. Jefferson actually agreed with them. He wrote to a friend, a little rebellion now and then is a good thing. And he also wrote, the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. So he understood their plight. The men preparing together in Philadelphia in 1787 thought differently. Washington was deeply troubled by the rebellion. He felt that society could not tolerate its members taking up arms whenever they felt like it. You can't just do that. You have to go through certain channels. Most of these men believed that such disorder was the natural consequence of excessive democracy. Democracy was fine, but excessive democracy was not. So in late May of 1787, 55 men from 12 different states assembled in Philadelphia Philadelphia, mainly representing America's social and economic elite. Rhode Island, who was a very radical state, refused to send a delegation. They were patriots, Republicans, but not as much Democrats. Not being Republicans and Democrats in the way we're thinking today. But they liked the idea of a republic, they liked the idea of some democracy, but not too much democracy. Most of them felt that the country had too much democracy at the time. Now they agreed the first day to vote by state. They chose Washington to chair the event and they decided that their meeting would be secret. Although James Madison will take copious amount of notes and that's how we know what went on in the convention. They sealed the doors and windows of the Pennsylvania State House where they met, which was very sacrificial of them. It was very humid in Pennsylvania in the summer and they did not have air conditioning. Additionally, every member swore not to discuss the proceedings with outsiders. George Washington was furious when a delegate misplaced a sheet of notes. Now they weren't trying to be sinister. Everyone knew why they were there, why they were meeting. They knew they were revising the Articles of Confederation. The delegates sequestered themselves because they knew that number one, they were performing an historic act and they needed to proceed with caution and calm and they needed to not have any distractions. They also wished to voice their frankest opinions without fear of affecting their political careers back home. So there was a little bit of self-interest in that. If uh, but, but a lot of it was they wanted to be able to speak freely and maybe what they were going to say wasn't always as popular but it was necessary to hear. So they decided that they would make everything sort of secret. 
They ended up deciding to scrap the Articles of Confederation completely and start over, mainly because revising them would require all states to ratify, and Rhode Island didn't even send a delegation. May 29, 1787, Edmund Randolph will present a proposal drafted by Madison and the Virginia delegates, which set the agenda. In the Virginia Plan, as it was called, Madison advocated a whole new form of federal government, comprised of three branches, the executive, the judicial, and the legislative. The legislative branch would be bicameral, which meant that there would be two houses, and the population of the state would determine the number of representatives in each house. One of the major disputes raised revolved around the number of representatives each state could send to the legislature. The bigger populated states wanted to base the number on the population size. That was part of the Virginia plan. Now concerned that this formula would give larger states an unfair advantage, the smaller states argued for an equal number of representatives in both houses. Their alternative plan was called the New Jersey plan, equal representation in both houses. The issue was solved in what was known as the Great Compromise. It's a compromise between the big states and the small states, and that resulted in a bicameral legislature that allows the upper house to have equal representation and the lower house to be based on population. There was also an issue between slave states and non-slave states. Now the South, of course, wanted slavery protected by the central government. The South wanted slaves included with the population census in order to boost the power of the states when it came to determining representation. So say, for example, you had 30 families in a state and those families were counted. They were all white families and it made up 100 people. But if you counted all the slaves that they had, that might make up three or 400 people, which would mean another representative. So they wanted to count slaves as part of the population when it came time to determining how much representation in Congress they would get. However, it did not want to count the slaves when it came to apportioning taxes. And that's, of course, how they paid for the federal government. Whatever expenses the federal government had, they would add them up and then divide it between the states. And it was based on population as to how much you had to pay. So they didn't want to count them when it came to that. So they kind of wanted to have their cake and eat it too. The North didn't like either one of those things that much, but the, the thing that the North was concerned about was that they wanted a central government with the power to regulate commerce. They have a lot of industry in the North and they want to be able to regulate commerce. So in exchange for the South's support of the Commerce Clause, the North will agree to something called the Three-Fifths Compromise. And that meant that they would count slaves in the population sort of. For every five slaves, that would count as three freedmen for the population purposes. Now, people get really confused about this. So basically what it means is that slaves would be counted as three-fifths of a person. But it also makes people confused because I know I had a lot of students who would often think, oh, that means three-fifths of the slaves could vote. No, none of them could vote. None of them were considered citizens. It's just a matter of whether they were counted in the population or not. And they would be counted according to the three-fifths compromise as three-fifths of a person. Additionally, South Carolina and Georgia demanded protection for the slave trade. Now, this is going to cause a huge debate. They could not get past it. They ended up including a provision part of the three-fifths compromise will prevent any federal restriction on the importation of slaves for 20 years. So the international slave trade is pretty much left alone by the federal government for 20 years. Now, that's not to say that states can't restrict it, but the federal government could not. 
Um, I will say that once that 20-year period was up, they will immediately put forth a law and pass it that ended the international slave trade. But for 20 years, they just basically put it aside because they couldn't agree. And then another part of the Three-Fifths Compromise will legitimize the return of fugitive slaves from free state. They basically said if a slave runs away and runs to the north or to a free state, any of the people in the free states were required to turn them in or not aid them in their running away. Now, a lot of the delegates did not agree at all with slavery, but they were more concerned at the time with preserving a union. So they went with this three-fifths compromise, despite the fact that they didn't really agree with it. Now, they still have to figure out the rest of the government. There were demands for a very powerful chief executive. Alexander Hamilton was one of those. He called for a lifetime appointment of the president. <laughs> People were like, um, you know that's like a monarch, right? But most of the delegates feared that no, that would lead to a monarchy, so they didn't want to go that far. But they did want the president to have veto power to check the legislature. And so they decided on having an elected president, but then they were worried because they feared that ordinary voters wouldn't select wisely. They thought, you know, you have to be really well-read and know what's going on in politics to be able to vote correctly. So we're concerned that people will just go in and vote and not really know what the issues are and vote well. I don't know anybody like that, right? <laughs> so anyway, they decided to kind of insulate the presidency and they developed something called the Electoral College. That meant that the voters wouldn't actually technically vote for the president. I mean, yes, you went and wrote that name on the ballot, but you voted for an elector and each state would select a group of electors that were equal to the state's total representation in the House and Senate. So if you had 30 representatives in the House and two representatives in the Senate, obviously, then you would have 32 electors for your state. And after a general election, the electors from your state would meet and they would vote for your state. And they're actually the ones who elect the president. After some revisions, the delegates will vote their approval of their new constitution on September 17th, 1787, and they send the document to Congress. After they agreed, it would become operative after ratification by nine states. Many congressmen were very upset when they got this document and found out that the articles had been totally scrapped and not just revised. They're like, wait, you didn't say you were going to do that. You just said you were going to put some amendments. But when it was pointed out that they couldn't do amendments because Rhode Island didn't even show up, then they they were like, all right, fine. They called for a special ratifying convention for all the states. The Constitution had its impact by strengthening the national government, but trying to ease the concerns of the people who were fearful of a strong central government. And there were lots of critics of the Constitution. Critics of the Constitution represented a variety of social and regional interests. Most of them believed that the Constitution granted too much power to the national government, that it weakened the autonomy and the power of the states and the local communities. Anti-federalists were people who were critics of the Constitution, and they feared it. They opposed the Constitution because they feared too much central power. Federalists were those who supported the Constitution. Anti-federalists thought that what might look good on paper would result in abuses of power, assuming that a national government that was given power would try to assume more and more power until we're back in the same boat we were, we were in when we had a monarchy. So the Federalists thought they could answer this by ensuring that the Constitution itself created a national government with limited powers. And they were limited strictly by the Constitution to the powers that were dealt 
delegated to the national government under the Constitution. So, for example, the Constitution gave the government the power to regulate commerce between and among the states, and they could raise an army and a navy, and they could appoint judges and establish courts. But beyond those powers, if it wasn't specifically given to the national government, if it wasn't written in the Constitution, then the government didn't have the power and they couldn't exercise it. So in that way, its powers were limited and its jurisdiction was limited. Unlike the jurisdiction of the state governments, which were a lot closer to the people and a lot easier to control. Now, most political thinkers of the 18th century agreed that a Republican form of government could work for only small countries. They pointed out things like Rome and when Rome was a republic and when it got bigger it sort of collapsed and so they said oh, we can't be a big country and be a republic it won't last but James Madison and Alexander Hamilton and John Jay will write a series of essays entitled the Federalist Papers and they defended the new constitution and they kind of turned the idea a lot of people felt like the public good would be sacrificed to a thousand private views and they turned that idea upside down. Madison felt that a greater size would actually be an advantage because the interests of different people would be so diverse that no single faction would be able to gain control of the country and threaten its freedom because it's so diverse. John Jay wrote five of the essays. Madison wrote 29 of them. Hamilton actually wrote the bulk. He wrote 51. Uh, so there were 85 essays that were meant to sway the people to vote for the new constitution. And they were really fairly successful. Now, in voting, rural farmers and agrarian types tended to vote anti-federalists, while the commercial farmers and city merchants and bankers and people like that tended to vote federalist. When it came time to vote on ratification, Rhode Island rejected the Constitution. North Carolina also rejected it. They won't join the Union until the following year, followed by a grouchy Rhode Island. New York ratified, but only because New York City threatened to secede from the state and join the Union separately. Virginia was divided, but the promise of a Bill of Rights that would protect people from potential abuses by the central government will persuade the Virginia delegates to ratify. In actuality, five different states' ratification actually hinged on creating a Bill of Rights. In the spring of 1789, the new federal government will take power. This after the first federal elections and the temporary capital was New York City. George Washington's inauguration took place on April 30th, 1789. And those first years of the new government were very important in shaping the structure of American politics and government for years to come. Now a top priority was the Bill of Rights that had been promised in order to get the Constitution ratified. The Constitutional Convention had actually considered a Bill of Rights patterned after the Declaration of rights that were in a lot of the state constitutions, which we talked about in a former podcast, but they ultimately rejected the idea as unnecessary. But now they'll go back to it. Anti-Federalists will propose over 200 potential amendments. So in June of 1789, James Madison will put them into proposal form and will go through Congress. Congress will pass 12 of them. Those 12 were sent to the states and 10 of them will survive to become our Bill of Rights in 1791. The two that were dropped dealt with numbers in the Senate and something else that didn't actually have to do with like individual rights. So they wanted to make sure that those uh, 10 amendments definitely had to do with individual rights and protections for those things. So the Bill of Rights is considered the most important constitutional legacy of the Anti-Federalists. Thanks for taking the tour. Come back next week for a tour of the brand new government under our very first president, George Washington. Please be sure to listen, subscribe, rate, and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like the tour, invite a friend along. See you next week.